0: I'm Phoebe, and I'm Yanbo, and welcome to Vine to Glass, where we talk about all things wine.
1: Today, we're doing the second half of our 10 questions on how to get started. So last week, we talked about where do you buy wine, whether it's at your grocery store or at your local wine shop, and how do you build some of those relationships as you get started, and how do you really go through the process of exploration? Today, we're going to be continuing the conversation with some other questions. Another question that I have for you is, is it true that there's a difference between bottled wine and all these newer formats that are popping up? Like here in the UK, you see some interesting new products that are in the can. And of course, there's box wine as well. Is there really a difference?
0: <laughs> yeah. So the... Surge or you know, however big or small the actual surge is of canned wine in the market is certainly noteworthy. And I think that there is absolutely a time and a place for pretty much everything. If canned wine fits a bill, well, then great. If you're going on a hike or something or picnic and you want something portable, then that can be a really worthwhile option. In my experience, I think rose and sparkling are best suited for cans as opposed to still reds and whites. I think just because the body and flavor of rose and sparkling seem to be less affected by aluminum. You know, maybe that's because they spend significant time in stainless steel vessels during fermentation or I'm not sure exactly. I don't I don't know how much analysis has been done of post canned wine, but it's definitely built to be consumed in the near term, whether it's canned or boxed. So same thing with boxed. The presumption is that buyers will consume it in the near future, so they're not something that will be age-worthy. Therefore, the juice going into those vessels tends to be of a lower quality, right? Winemakers and owners are going to be much more concerned with the quality of the wine that goes into a glass bottle because they know it may not get drunk right away. People want to age it. And they take pride on the fact that their wine can age because it reflects a certain level of quality in the winemaking. And that's just not a concern in canned and boxed wine. So if you just need an accessible format of alcohol, then great. You you know, you won't be spending a lot of money on it. And I think to a certain degree you get what you pay for. So if it's juicy and it's good for your situation, then then great. Personally, I think that life is too short and hangovers are too unpleasant to drink mediocre wine, but like we said, there's a time and place for almost everything.
1: <laughs> well, but going back to this boxed wine, canned wine, non-traditional formats... I agree that there is definitely a stigma around those non-traditional formats. But I have to say, you know, some of these, the new canned products like Four Rose or Sparkling Rose, or there are even sort of like spritzers that I've noticed, some of them have fabulous branding. I mean, the labels are, are so beautiful. The product inside is not... It, Time and a place for everything, right? It's not going to be the same thing as drinking a beautiful 15 year old white burgundy that has so much character and body. And it's they're sort of like apples and, and oranges, but you know, like we also had that party in college called Tour de Francia, um, which you know, like. <laughs> That would not that, <laughs> that party would not have really I mean like it's not <laughs> uh, white burgundy is not suitable for that party right like franzia <laughs> made that party
0: a party very, very true very true I mean you had made a point before as well about the fact that those aren't representative of a region either and I think that's a key point for me too Otherwise, how do you choose something to go with dinner? How, or you know, conversely, and when if you're out, how are you as a consumer approaching a wine list and picking out something from a wine list?
1: Oh gosh, okay. I think
0: this is a really hard question,
1: and I think so. I have a couple of thoughts on this. One is a recommendation that I think you gave me a while ago, which is. If you're scanning through a wine list and maybe you're feeling a little adventurous, sometimes there are going to be things that pop out at you that are not typical. So, you know, most wine lists will have a Chardonnay and a Sauvignon Blanc. But if you see sort of a, an interesting grape from an underrepresented region, that can often be great value for money. It can be something interesting. But I think the fail safe way to go about choosing something is to just ask. Especially if you're at a restaurant with a sommelier, don't be shy about asking questions. I think that oftentimes, and I include myself in this, you know, maybe you ask one or two questions and then it feels a bit awkward to ask more. But I think you just really shouldn't hesitate to pepper them with questions. I mean, normally psalms like to talk about wine and they they enjoy actually having a discussion about it. So you don't have to feel self-conscious or limited to, to just a few. You know, you can ask about the producer, you can ask, you know, Phoebe, I love the question that you brought up earlier. Which was like, ask them something that they've enjoyed recently. You know, you should share what you're going to eat because that can also affect the,
0: the choice. Yeah, I completely agree. And I think that also reminds me of one thing that I constantly tell people is that your sense of knowing that you belong there and knowing that you deserve to ask those questions and you don't need to be shy or anything like that is a huge part of the culture of wine honestly i think it can be one of these incredibly slobby, haughty types of industries and what people really respond to is confidence and i think one thing i like to remind people of is you don't owe anyone anything and you you deserve to be engaging in that conversation just as much as the next person. And it doesn't matter if you don't know very much you have, you know, you have to start somewhere and good on you for taking the plunge, you know, aside from that, like definitely speak to the Psalm and or the person working the store. And I think that if you have to break it down Chemically, that's one way that I would do it. So, in order to pick something that makes sense for what you're eating, that's one way that I always look at a wine. So, if I am well, first of all, if I'm eating with a group or other person, please, for the love of God, ask them what they're planning to eat or what they like or don't like because I've been at multiple meals where someone will order wine without even consulting the group and i find it so arrogant and rude so <laughs> keeping me mind- rude what's that
1: don't be rude
0: yes just the basics you know keeping with the attitude that wine is a collective cultural social experience let's do that properly so once we've done this then i really like to break down the base of the food and its sauce so Sometimes the base or the protein dominates the dish, and sometimes the sauce dominates the dish. A helpful rule of thumb is that heavier food wants heavier wine. So for example, as beautiful as a you know full-bodied Chardonnay is or can be, I'm not gonna suggest that you order that if you are having steak. But full-bodied Chardonnay could pair wonderfully with risotto, whether it's a summer risotto or a winter risotto. And these kinds of pairings will highlight the food rather than overpowering or ruining it because it's not an appropriate match. So you could summarize that by saying heavier and more dense base foods want heavier, more dense wines, or rich white sauces want rich white wines. But if it is a rich food, it still needs to be paired with a wine with acid. So like a Sauvignon Blanc or a French Chardonnay that isn't drowned in oak, because you need acid to break down the fat in the food. So the acid acts as a palate cleanser, essentially, while you're eating your food and it cleans your tongue. The acid breaks down all the fat particles on your tongue. And that's what allows you to taste food as if it's the first time every bite because the acid has done that job for you and really cleansed your palate in a way. I think the flavorful red sauces really quite well with flavorful and full-bodied red wines. Like you said earlier, pasta and tomato sauce would go really well with Sangiovese-based red wines like a Tuscan Red Blend or a Brunello or even... You know, if you go north into Piedmont, a, Pap- a barbaresco or south to Sicily, and Nero d'Avola. And then same thing, lighter foods, probably want lighter wines as well. Salad, or whether it's vegetarian, or it has some things in it, good quality Sauvignon Blanc, aciertico, lighter Chardonnay, or even a light Pinot could go well, depending on what's in the salad or on a vegetable dish. I think the... Uh, the other part of that is like spicy or complexly seasoned food. That's kind of its own category. So in this situation, I think opposite flavors of the food is what you want in wine. So opposites are attracting here. Let's take Indian food for an example. I know this is a broad category, but speaking to the fact that for the most part, the spices used are rich, flavorful, strong, whether or not the food is actually Heat-wise, spicy or mild, and either way, it's an intense experience for your palate. It's a delicious one, but it's intense. So, in order to give your palate a kind of break, Indian food is delicious with these brighter, fruitier, and even you know slightly sweet wines like a dry or a medium dry Riesling, Gewürztraminer, Gruner Veltliner. I think those are beautiful with Indian food or same thing like Thai food that is slightly spicy. I think those categories of food obviously have their own regional nuances that can become more complicated. But generally, I would say this rule of thumb works really well. Keeping things like acid as a guide to help you distinguish how much acid you need based on how creamy or heavy the food is. Mm, Those are such great recommendations, Phoebe. I feel
1: like one other thing where once you've had the chance to Try, let's say, a wider range of wines. And if you have some bottles or producers that you really love, I think if you go to a restaurant with a great wine list, it's also such a good opportunity to try a different vintage or maybe a different wine that that producer creates, especially if it's a producer that's harder to to find. So that can also be an interesting way to pick things out from a wine list.
0: Definitely. And I think once you do narrow in on something that you like, but you realize that you want to learn more about it, like what have you done for Far that has worked for you when it comes to learning more about a grape or a region that you really want to dive into? Oh gosh. Okay. So this one is...
1: This is hard, I think, because with wine, so I'm a I, I like to learn by reading. like that's my favorite way to learn. That's how I learn best. It's just how I process and digest information. but you can't really do that with wine. you have to you really have to taste in order to learn, or at least it's it is much more fundamental, I think, than maybe in other domains. So, you know, the things that I found have worked really well for me is to go to some of these wine tastings that your local wine bar might host. I also like those because they're very low commitment, right? You can kind of show up on a Saturday afternoon. It's not like you're signing up for a course. By the way... Courses can also be really, really great. I actually signed up for a WSET course with some friends this spring, which unfortunately was canceled, but that's a very structured way to learn about Grapes, regions, wine in general. And many places that host those types of courses will also have structured, slightly more formal classes that you can take about a certain grape or a region. And and that can be a great way to learn about them. But if you're just casually learning about something, wine bars, I think, are are just really fabulous for, for those tastings. And sometimes you have to ask about them because they may or may not have them on their website. Oftentimes they do, but I don't know. I've definitely been at some of my favorite places where the waiter just says, oh, by the way, we're having a tasting on Saturday. And if you like this kind of wine, you should definitely come by. So that's all right. I also feel like there are some apps that I've really enjoyed and i guess when it comes down to it the thing that i felt like has given me the most exposure to grapes or regions are um, some of the trips
0: that we've been on yes oh they've been phenomenal <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. yeah man. what was our first one napa i think
1: Yeah. You know, I guess that was the first sort of time we went to wine country together and then we did champagne and and Burgundy. But I feel like i learned so much on those trips because one, there was such a great volume and variety of things that we were tasting in one go. I think that kind of accelerates the learning curve because if you're trying one or two things, that's wonderful. And it can be a really great experience, but it just doesn't give you the same exposure as trying 10 to 15 things in one sitting. You don't really... You don't have a tangible sense of the nuance of maybe the differences between certain vintages or maybe, you know, one of my favorite things that we did in Burgundy was all of these tastings with producers where they would bring a map and they would say, oh, this, you know, this wine is from this particular plot of land. And these are the characteristics. Of that plot. And here's this other wine that's produced from the neighboring plot, which has a different exposure, a different soil composition. And as you're going, you can really, you're literally tasting that. And I think that is, that was really just such a treat and such a special experience.
0: So true. And it is, it is such a privilege to be able to go to some of these wine regions and taste with the most passionate people in the world who could go on for days talking about their wines. And to me, that's magnetic to me. I love that experience in the wine industry. And it's one of the things that makes me want to continue working in it. And I think if you can get to these regions, that's like you said, the ability to dive in and you don't, you don't have to be there, right? I would say this applies to whatever you've decided you're interested in and whether it's. Italian Sangiovese or French Chardonnay. And I think taking some time and devoting yourself to diving into that category for a little while is super important to really developing a deep understanding of it. So take some time to open several bottles from different producers, from different vintages, from different regions, and understand. Not only what the similarities are among that grape and how it's similar among different regions, but understand how it's different as well, because that's going to tell you just as much about its characteristics as the similarities as well. So eventually, you know, say you're diving into French Chardonnay, then choosing things like Argentine Chardonnay as a comparison is going to show you just as much about French Chardonnay as drinking multiple bottles of the same region. And then once Mm -hmm. you start to feel a level of confidence and a level of understanding among that region or that varietal, then I would say you're ready to move on to the next one. So here's a question that
1: sort of touches on something I mentioned earlier about myself. You know, I would love to hear your thoughts on reading material. I just, I would love to hear what you think about the reading material that exists out there and whether you have recommendations for what people can read to learn more.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think the summary for this question from me is it's hard to read things without a live reference point. So reading, reading, reading about a region or about a producer is not going to stick the same way if you aren't able to taste some of the wines. I think the the ideal scenario is to taste and read at the same time or or you know one not so long after the other. It just it sticks a completely different way in your brain, but <laughs> assuming that we don't all have the opportunity to drink what we want when we want I think mixing up your mediums and or mixing up the type of media that you consume is really important. The obvious answer for a lot of people seems to be the magazines, right? The really widely distributed ones like Wine Spectator and Wine Enthusiast and those magazines are great. They'll have a lot of useful information. I think again a word of caution from me would be that they are strategic, right? They have partnerships or incentives that they need to Honor, and so it's not always an unbiased representation of information. But for that, you know, to get away from that that uh, situation or to get away from that concern, I like to actually go into historical fiction or nonfiction. There is this book called *Wine and War*, and it's a really like a novel that talks about the history of wine and its the role that it played in World War 1, World War 2 and I think reading books like that will help give you such a better perspective for the whole scope of wine and why why it matters, why it has developed such a deep cultural importance in certain regions of the world and for me it helps me develop an increased respect for those regions and the people who work in it for so long. I mean, I, I am fully aware of the sometimes ludicrous passion or devotion that people who work in wine have for what is really just a consumable alcoholic beverage at its core. But when you can understand the reference points historically, culturally, present day, it's there's such a bigger picture that helps us understand why, why this matters and why this has been, why this beverage has been a part of human life for thousands and thousands of years.
1: You took such an interesting take on, on that question. And I would love to pick up that book Yeah, that's such an interesting perspective because you're absolutely right. The historical lens through which we can understand wine and the culture that surrounds wine can be super, super interesting. I actually remember reading some time ago in a Russian history book that Peter the Great went to bed every night with four bottles of champagne, (laughs) um, which
0: I thought was very impressive. Cannot blame him. Cannot blame him. These are some personal goals.
1: <laughs> but really, like one person? I mean, that's just a lot of liquid to <laughs> consume. <laughs> <laughs> no, been considering. Well, anyway, I don't know how you do that. But it, it, it sounds delightful. <laughs> 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 What about some of the, you know, you mentioned earlier the blogs, which by the way, after you recommended that, I subscribed to it, um, some Picks, you recommended a few reference books. Do you have any other blogs that you love or writers or critics that you follow?
0: So I guess you know, this is something that seems to change for me based on what my preferences are at the time. I do like Antonio Galloni's approach to reviewing. And I've actually taken to Instagram more as a real time, easily digestible way to get a pretty solid amount of information from producers or importers or retailers in a you know in a quick format i think you were mentioning the paper and i think that's that's also a really nice just really lovely experience to go through and a really nice activity as a way to read about wine some of those writers are phenomenal and they they do such a nice job
1: Well, I think that brings us to our last question, which is a question that was submitted by one of our very good friends, Luca Barone. And Uh, the
0: question.
1: Yes! So the question is if you had to pick five bottles of wine that are representative of a selection of a category of wine, which could be a grape or a region, what would you choose?
0: Hmm. So there are a lot of different ways that I would approach this question. And it is actually a really, it's a hard one, but it's a really nice way to think about wine. Because I, like we were saying earlier, one of the best ways to really learn about something is by understanding it in its own similar category, as well as understanding its differences. So I would separate this into types of experiences that would provide an authentic, at the risk of using an overplayed word, reflection of a country's production stylistically and, of course, varietally. So my thought is to break down the answer into categories like core reds, which would mean some of the most widely distributed, easily accessible reds, highest selling, quote unquote, most popular reds in the world. Then I would look at emerging reds. So categories that are less well-known, but are making fabulous wine. Then I would do the same thing for whites. So core whites, emerging whites, and then I would do sparkling and rosé. I think for me, the most... (laughs) exciting part of that answer would be sparkling just cuz i love it. So that's a, you know we'll put all of these in our podcast notes if you want to actually see the full list of responses. My sparkling thoughts would be a french non-vintage champagne just to give you a sense of what a base level champagne tastes like. You know, that's a region that really prides itself on on its production and its history and while non-vintage champagnes differ, you know, sometimes slightly, sometimes significantly from producer to producer, there is definitely a core taste profile in a French non-vintage champagne, but then after that in order to understand some more of the nuances and what makes champagne great, I personally I love blanc de blanc, so I would pick a vintage blanc de blanc from champagne which is 100% Chardonnay. And then to develop a little bit of contrast, I would pick a California sparkling, preferably Schramsberg or Rotor. Those are my two favorite producers in the state. And they will... I think that'll give you a completely different understanding for the types and the flavor profiles that come out of California versus France and Champagne. Spanish Cava is something that there is so much Cava produced. And I think because the Cava that's widely distributed is often a lower price point, it tends to be underrepresented in its higher end productions. But if you do get one of these higher quality bottles, they they can be really interesting and impressive in their own right. And then lastly, the Italian Prosecco. I mean, it's a huge booming category and for good reason. That's, a really solid, easy drinking, sparkling. It's great on its own. It's great as a mimosa mixer. And to me, that covers a really, that's a fair representation of different styles from major producers across the world. Do you have any
1: favorite producers of Prosecco?
0: Yeah, I do actually I I love Nino Franco. I think is probably my favorite Prosecco producer. They make the standard entry level prosecco, which is probably on the more slightly more expensive end, but definitely worth it. And they they also make things like vintage prosecco. They make single vineyard prosecco. I mean, they make a rose that's they put so much quality into their production. I love Nina franco and i think they are unfortunately kind of difficult to find in the states but they are available in the states and i'm sure in the uk as well so definitely mm-hmm. seeking out
1: oh, okay that's a great recommendation
0: how about you Yamba?
1: okay so this is such a hard question you know phoebe i was also going to go for bubbly but maybe I will take a slightly different spin on it and I will just suggest some things that I really like. So I think if I were going to choose five different bottles from champagne to be representative of that region, I would probably choose... I've really been enjoying the Laurent Perrier Rosé I don't know why it's like I like to drink champagne a lot and have been very lucky to taste lots of different things, but I've been particularly enjoying this one recently. It's just like very delicious. And so that would be one pick. For my second bottle, I also love Blanc de Blanc, especially with a little bit of age on them. They can just have such a beautiful nose. And I think there are some really wonderful niche producers in Champagne, which, you know, before our visit, I just really had no idea about. I think that Champagne is sort of this image of being a marquee sort of... I don't know if that's even the right word, but it it has this image of being an occasion wine, right? Like something that you drink in celebration for a special occasion, not necessarily with a meal, but maybe as a toast or, or something like that. And a really transformative experience that I think I had with you was really seeing how champagne can also be something that you have with food. Like that's totally possible. And I think when it comes to Blanc de Blanc, especially for some of the ones that have some age, uh, that's definitely the case. So for maybe my second and third choice, I would go for something from maybe Pierre Payard or Agrapar et fils. And I would choose something that has a vintage and preferably with a little bit of age, just so you can see what that is like. Although I also tried something from a producer that I hadn't heard of called Don't Crege, which I really, really loved. Mm-hmm. Um, okay. So something with a little bit of age from one of those producers. And then I would get a bottle of a Blanc de Blanc from a slightly bigger producer, like maybe Renault, for example, just them. to compare. Yeah, mm, They're so good. I mean, I think they're an excellent producer, but I think it's also interesting to compare um, something that they make, which is very, very good, but to contrast that to you know, a slightly different approach from one of these smaller producers. And then I think if you're uh, looking for something that has a little more age, I really love the tete de from...
0: Tatinje. you were like... Yes,
1: thank you. You read my mind, Phoebe. <laughs> <laughs> yes, <laughs> their compte de champagne is amazing and it goes so well with, with food. So, I, I really like that with Japanese food, especially cooked Japanese food. I think it's just mm. um, absolutely gorgeous. Mm. Um, and then, maybe for my fifth choice, I'll throw in something that mm. is not from Champagne, just to compare and contrast with the rose that I mentioned earlier, the L'Empere rose. So, my fifth choice would be the rose frisante from Made Domagassat, which yes. is also a relative discovery for me but not for you and it was so delicious i loved it i loved it
0: yeah those guys are so so good and i love that they really bring attention and respect to an undervalued region all the wines they make whether it's the reds or the whites or the sparkling are so beautiful and so well done yeah, definitely something worth seeking out. I remember when we, we used to sell them at the distributor in New York, and any time the rosé or the rosé frisante came into stock and we had received the new vintage from overseas, people would go nuts for it, and it would sell out within you know, two months. And the restaurants and the sales reps who got it were like king of the hill for a day. It was mm-hmm. a battle to get that inventory yeah really really fantastic to see how much people love a small producer like that and the nuances that you get from that region and even from this question overall is one of the things that i really love about wine because the passion and human passion is so fun regardless of the topic and wine producers are full of it and That, in my opinion, is what really drives a producer to add their own twist to something or make a bottle uniquely in their own style. And to me, that's one of the things that makes wine exciting, is that opening a bottle is like opening a present, even if you know what's inside from the label you never really know until you taste it. It could be different because of the vintage or, you know, the blend could have slightly, slightly changed that year. And it's one of those experiences that changes even as you taste it, right? Thirty minutes later it's different as it's been exposed to oxygen. And then again after sixty minutes and that is kind of the ultimate engaging and hedonist experience for the palate, which is, you know, one of the reasons that I think people love wine so much and why I think Millennials, actually, will probably increasingly love wine, too, or such an experience-driven generation. And good wine is the ultimate consumer experience, especially when you maximize the opportunity from the social element and the wonderful food pairings. It's such a, a lovely part of culture that I hope we all continue to keep relevant. I hope so,
1: too. Mm -hmm. Well, I think that brings us to the end of our questions. And we would definitely love to hear if you have ideas for things that you'd like to hear about or specific topics that you'd like for us to cover or questions that you might have. So please, please get in touch if you have any thoughts or ideas.
0: Absolutely. And otherwise, thanks so much for joining us, guys. And we uh, look forward to giving you another episode soon so stay tuned